This is a download from News Talk 106 to 108. To download other programmes or for more information, go to newstalk.ie. Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. interview with the Paris Review American short story writer and poet Raymond Carver said of course you have to know what you're doing when you turn your life stories into fiction you have to be immensely daring very skilled and imaginative and willing to tell everything on yourself you're told time and again when you're young to write about what you know and what you don't know and what do you know better than your own secrets But unless you're a special kind of writer, a very talented one, it's dangerous to try and write volume after volume on the story of my life. A great danger, or at least a great temptation for many writers, is to become too autobiographical in their approach to their fiction. A little autobiography and a lot of imagination are best. Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. Can a story answer itself? Well, this week's show is dedicated to the master of the open-ended story, author and poet Raymond Carver, possibly one of the greatest American short story writers of the 20th century. Professor Robert Miltoner, the esteemed editor of the Raymond Carver Review and Irish Carver scholar Tim Grunland from the School of English at Trinity College Dublin talk The Good Raymond the bad Raymond, and that unique artistic vision that dreamt up literary gems such as what we talk about when we talk about love. And Carol Skalenka, author of Raymond Carver, A Writer's Life, gives the inside track on this joint of American letters. This is a show about beauty and rage, genius and frustration, addiction, and the complex psychological dramas played out in failed relationships. But first, writing from experience, the raging literary will of Raymond Carver. The writings and literary vision of American short story writer and poet Raymond Carver have inspired generations of writers since the early 1980s. Carver's trademark style, known as dirty realism, offers readers unique stories of working class lives set in his native northwest. Carver's intense and compact narratives powerfully convey the whole spectrum of human emotions, from the frustrations in marriage the problems of addiction, loneliness, desperation and violence. Yes, you've got it. Carver is not an easy read, but I tell you, this is one man and writer that is so bloody worth it. Interestingly, Carver's own life paralleled some of his compelling, if hugely unnerving, characters. Raymond Carver was born in a small logging town in Oregon in 1938. At just 22, he was locked in to a joyless marriage to Marianne Burke, his high school sweetheart, with whom he had two children. Carver spent most of his 20s and early 30s working in menial jobs while also trying to support a family, a writing career and going to college. Carver's first literary success came with Put Yourself in My Shoes, his third collection of short stories, published in 1974. In 1981, 
Raymond Carver's breakthrough came when he published What We Talk About When We Talk About Love. Edited by Gordon Lish, it was the first of Carver's novels to be published in the UK and soon became one of the most influential pieces of literary fiction of the late 20th century. Now, while Raymond Carver was known as a minimalist, he disliked the label and struggled to break free from it in his later stories. Cathedral was published in 1984 and I think is one of the most original and beautifully crafted collection of short stories ever written in the English language. Its title story, Cathedral, is humbling, raw and wonderfully moving. On reading this collection, one reviewer from the New York Times commented, The improbable and the homely are Carver's territory. He works in the bargain basement of the soul. In 1988, Carver published his last short story collection, Elephant, and in the same year, Where I'm Calling From, a compilation of some of his most popular works, was nominated for both a Pulitzer Prize and a National Book Circle Award. Incidentally, Raymond Carver also produced several books of poetry. Of note are Winter Insomnia, At Night the Salmon Moves, Ultramarine and A New Path to the Waterfall. In an interview before he died, Carver told Publishers Weekly, I never figured I'd make a living from writing short stories. I never had stars in my eyes. I never had the big score mentality. I'm pleased and happy with the way things turned out, but I was surprised. Well, a few weeks ago, I had the pleasure of meeting up with Tim Grunland, a PhD student at the School of English at Trinity College Dublin, and poet and writer Robert Miltner from Kent State University and editor of the Raymond Carver Review. We talked about the man whose stories write towards the silence. I think what attracted me to Raymond Carver was where I was at in my life when I started reading him. I was familiar with his work, but I came across his book, um, Where Water Comes Together with Other Water, which was his first full-length collection of poetry. And so I kind of entered into him um, when he was in the late poetry, in that post-alcoholism, the years of of recovery. Uh, as, As Tess Gallagher put it one time, he really didn't have a midlife transition. He just got sober. But on the other side of that, that work is so much richer and fuller, the discovery of how you balance your creative energies to counteract the kind of destructive things you've done in in your youth or um, during periods of of your addiction. From there, then, I began to notice as I started reading the, the the body of the poetry and then moving into the fiction and all the other prose, was that I could see these very clear trajectories, that there was this early Carver and late Carver, what he referred to as the, the bad Raymond and the good Raymond period. And my greater fascination is with the later work, which is much richer, where instead of um, being mired in the, being a, uh, an economic nomad and struggling with alcoholism and having a codependent relationship, to be on the other side of that and be sober and to mine that material with a different um, and be able to explore how we move out of what shapes us and how we shape that then into a fuller, richer art. Not the work that's edited down, which we see with Gordon Lish, who in some cases would cut 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 percent of some of those stories. It's just so readable. It's the great American vernacular that's in it, too. The incredible conversational voice that he has in his poetry, um, writing those so-called lyric narrative poems where he's the hero of his own stories, and they're, they're almost like memoirs with line breaks, really. And how would you describe his artistic vision as a poet? And how connected was that with his private life? 
I think his vision was to uh, try to speak as clearly as he could of the life that, that he had lived and to realize that uh, what, what your life is is what your art is. There were some letters that I've read that he wrote to his daughter who was asking things like, you know, how, how can you expose me like this in the work? And he said, you know, he would talk about how the life we live is the life we live. The, the, the way we turn it into art is what gives us a way to understand it and, and see it in, in, a, in a larger frame. The artistic vision that, that goes beyond that, as I see it with Raymond Carver, is that poetry and fiction were really very closely intertwined. There are, are stories that also exist as poems, the, the same uh, images, the same core stories that keep recurring. His idea, too, that short fiction, um, what does he say one time? He says, a story should answer itself. I love that idea. He was really known as a writer of the so-called divergent or open-ended stories. And, of course, that comes from the early years when he was really intentionally writing short pieces and not having longer pieces edited down for that effect. His closural techniques in his fiction are, are oftentimes borrowed very directly from the kind of closural techniques that we see in poetry and not coming from the world of fiction. So that, for example, in Neighbors, the story ends with this, this image of these two people leaning as if into a wind. I mean, that kind of imagistic ending without resolving the story is purely a poetic technique. So like Carver also said, too, that if you give all the details to the reader to take them through a narrative, you don't have to give the background. Then start where you pull them in and take them to a point where Something can happen next, but you don't have to tell the reader what happens next. The reader will borrow from the story and complete that action. And he called that the story answering itself. I think he came out of that period of reader response as a critical theory and was bringing that uh, at play into his fiction, probably more so than his poetry. I think in a lot of ways he was, he was more experimental as a, a fiction writer than he was experimental as a poet. And Tim, Gordon Lish stirs very mixed views on exactly what his collaborations were or not with Raymond Carver, whether he was responsible for everything or nothing. How would you describe their creative process, their creative relationship and the editing process? Yeah, Lish is a controversial figure in the um, Carver story and uh, he does uh, kind of arouse people's uh, passions for for or against. I, I mean, I sit somewhere in the middle. He was definitely a big part of the picture in terms of helping Carver to get published during these difficult years in the 70s and in helping to shape his early stories in the years when Carver really needed and wanted that help. And Carver was really very open to that kind of help. And you see in the in the correspondence with Lish, which, uh, which I read earlier this year in, in in, um, the Lilly Library in Indiana, which I know Robert have also examined those archives, and you really see that there's a really kind of lively literary correspondence going on between them, and he's uh, he's very thankful for this kind of help. But as the relationship progresses, and particularly as Carver gives up alcohol and gains his own sense of confidence as a writer, I think you really see him trying to assert his own vision. And at a certain point uh, in 1980, when Lish was editing the manuscript that was called Beginners, and Lish edited this into, uh, into the book that was published as What We Talk About When We Talk About Love in 1981. And uh, that's really where you see the most dramatic I suppose, clash in visions and you see this remarkable fusion of two different artistic visions. The book that was published is about half as long as the manuscript that Carver submitted and uh, as Robert mentioned, sometimes you see 70-80% of these stories being cut back. Would you describe that as an unusual relationship in terms of such a heavy editing process? Would that be typical of a writer's experience with their editor? 
I don't think it would be typical. It's a little difficult to say because editing by its nature is often something that's kind of behind the curtain. As a reader, you don't really get to see it. But I think Lish was not an ordinary editor. I mean, when you look at his archives and when you see the work he did with other writers, I think you see that he was uh, an editor who cut a lot more heavily than editors usually would uh, and that editors did at the time. So again, I think you can't ignore the the importance he has in uh, in shaping the way Carver's work is received in those years. It's also very difficult to separate this from the, the personal relationship because, as I said, Carver really wanted help and wanted a, a strong editor in those years. And Lish was a very kind of charismatic, in some ways slightly eccentric character who was very, um, had really had no problem with imposing his own vision on those stories if he felt that that was the right thing to do. I mean, the other unusual aspect of it was that Carver was obviously reluctant for this to happen. You, you see this, we've discovered this in recent years through the archives, and you see that Carver was really objecting very strongly behind the scenes to these cuts, and at one point begged Lish not to publish the book, but Lish obviously convinced him otherwise. And in the years after that, you see Carver republishing the original stories in other, in other collections without kind of openly saying that these are the unedited stories and there's this kind of hidden struggle going on to reassert his own vision for his art. And Robert, do you think Gordon Lish bullied Carver in some ways? He obviously was quite vulnerable in terms of he was drinking very heavily, he was taking a lot of drugs. His relationship was very problematic, to put it mildly. So do you think he was in such a vulnerable position that a strong character like Gordon Lish could come and chop everything up? I'm not sure I, I would go so far as to say uh, to say bullying. I think he was really aggressive as an editor, and I think it's because he had a vision of wanting to shape a kind of a literary movement, you know, in the way that Ezra Pound in the, in the early modernist period was in, in inventing movements. Yeah, I think um, that was the kind of goal, in a way, that Lish had, was to create this minimalist movement, and he shaped the careers of a lot of writers. A couple of things happened, though. One is that when he was working with Carver in the early period of that, Carver was more malleable and not in control of his life. And one of the things that that, that Carver said to Lish in in those letters was he was really concerned about the fact that these stories had been read by friends and had been published. And he he was terrified of the fact that these works would be chopped and cut. And it was also during this time period when Ray is is living with Tess Gallagher, who is a, a fine writer, and I think that she had taken that role in his life of of reading. I mean, you can read in, in the manuscripts at Ohio State that I've seen of Carver's work. You see her handwriting in there, but it was a more collaborative process between Tess and Ray, and not the kind of directive relationship that. Lish took on with with Ray, and I think I think the the larger effect is that where Lish's style stuff, the way that he pared sentences down and gave it the quick read and the rhythms of it, in many ways shape a kind of a sense of what we see as the Raymond Carver story. From a writer's perspective, though, a, a writer intends the story to do something. You know, we can discuss what you know the, the role of intent and all that. But when you're writing a story, you know what you want the story to do. When 30, 40% is taken out, the story isn't the story anymore. It's not the story you wanted to tell. And in some cases, like in Gazebo, for example, in the long version of that, the ending is so dramatically different that it no longer is Dwayne's story, which is what Carver wrote. It becomes Holly's story, which was Liz's vision. 
So I don't know if that's bullying uh, on, on a personal level as much as it's, it's really highly intrusive and very, very aggressive for an editor to do that, to feel that what the writer wanted to do and wrote the story to do doesn't matter to you as an editor. You're the editor who wants to shape this vision of, of, of minimalism, and you go with that. But clearly, Gordon Lish served him a great commercial favour because he sold a massive amount of books and he became this international star. So whether you could question the creative integrity of what Gordon Lish did, he certainly launched him onto the world stage. So do you think that maybe Raymond Carver would not have been as successful or got success the way he did had he just struck to his own instincts. Well, the question then is, is how we define success. There's artistic success, commercial success. Certainly, Raymond Carver seemed to feel that Gordon Lish had shaped his commercial success, but the debacle over the beginner's um, manuscript seems to show, uh, I think, that Carver was at that point and after that point concerned about something different. It was now about the artistic success of the story. And I wonder how much that early emphasis on commercial success was important to him because he grew up so poor and so working class and was the first in his family to even go to college. So um, there might be some classes in terms of his um, personal life and the shaping of him that, you know, the early goal when he's growing up poor is to become a successful writer. That's the dream. But what cost is the commercial success relative to you as the artist? Absolutely. I think it was a real double-edged sword for Carver and almost a sort of catch-22 what happened with that book because, uh, yeah, as Robert says, I mean, he really, he wanted commercial success. And like any young writer, he, you know, wanted nothing more than to get published and to be able to pursue his career as a writer and live off his, his writing. But once that happened and once he had this kind of remarkable and quite sudden commercial success in 1981. He was in a way stuck with this tag of being a minimalist and stuck with this description of almost being the the sort of father of a school of fiction that he didn't really want to be associated with and that he didn't really see himself as belonging in because his fiction was so influential in the in the 1980s it seems as if sometimes you get the impression that almost every writer in in America in every student writing workshop was imitating Carver's stories i mean his his model of fiction really became the model for a while and when you look at some of the great stories like what we talk about when we talk about love our cathedral how hard did he work on these stories because they read so magnificently. They're full of terror and rage, but they're unbelievably humorous. There's an exquisite beauty to them, but there's horror as well. How much crafting, how much chipping away did he have to do? It's difficult to say, but I, I think that you can see the you can see the craft and you can see the hard work just in the fact that the stories have that, that effect on you. I mean, there is a real kind of ring of truth to, to so many of Carver's stories, and I think that's... I mean, a ring of truth is maybe in a literary sense a hard thing to define or explain, but it's something that as a reader, sometimes it's unmistakable when you encounter it. Uh, and that was really it, the impression I had coming to Carver's stories, that really there was a, really a powerful sense of truth in these. Can I ask you, Robert, reading through any short story of Raymond Carver's, pretty much most of them have some jab at marriage and relationships and the frailty within human relationships and the bitterness and the anger, the frustration and also the great acts of generosity and forgiveness. How much a writer of marriage, a writer about the working classes and a writer about the human spirit was he? To me, from reading his work, it seems to define him. I would say in answer to that, Susan, that that may be 
the thing that makes it is the key to the universal appeal of Raymond Carver. I know people who don't read hardly at all, and they'll read Raymond Carver because it speaks so clearly of the way that we want things when we're young. We project our needs into career choices, into the choices for marriage. And oftentimes when the dreams don't pan out, we turn on the people we love. We want somebody else to carry the blame of that. And a lot of the couples in the Carver stories, there's these issues uh, so many times about wanting this good life that they don't get. The, the couple in Gazebo, for example, which is one of my favorite stories, and I think really exemplifies this, but the couple that are, they don't have a home. They're, they're, they're managing a motel. He's working two jobs. They're getting ahead, and yet... The minute he gets the sense of success, he has an affair and undermines the relationship. And so her dream is, you know, she wants a home and she wants to be someplace, but he doesn't want that anymore. You know, that's because maybe it's because it's the unattainable thing. One of the more interesting stories, and it's a late story by Carver, is Intimacy, the story about the writer who goes back and talks to the wife. And she's talking in this monologue, and she realizes that he's only come to see her because he's looking for new material for stories. <laughs> but I think it's that sense of how those relationships play out. I think, too, and this is, this is what I get from my reading of the body of the stories, is that I think in some ways that the men are very, very flawed, and Carver shows their flaws. And I think a lot of the women are actually far stronger than a lot of the men. A lot of times the men's actions have such negative effects on the women and how they deal with that. And oftentimes they handle it better than, than the men are doing. The idea of generosity, I think, is, is again part of maybe some of those later stories where that kind of second life. And if you look at Carver's achieving sobriety, the man on the other side of that exhibits a lot of the same traits that men who go through midlife transition to, which is to become more generous, more forgiving. And of course, the forgiveness is also connected to Carver's time working with uh, Alcoholics Anonymous. And so that generosity that comes in later, I think, is shown in the later stories that the relationships between the men and the women are more balanced and more equitable. Perhaps, though, that's a sense of what we see in Carver's own life, where his first marriage was a codependent relationship, where they were both drinking together, and in his second relationship with Tess, he's sober, and that isn't a codependent relationship. It's a more collaborative relationship. And so I, I think that kind of reflects in those sort of two periods of stories. He had a tremendous sense of humor when he's nailing down the ferocious alienation in relationship, uh, husband and wife and how they're communicating and that isolation and all the anger. Well, in all of that, there's moments of absolute hilarity in how he nails the language. This dialogue is tremendous. It's it's remarkable. Yes, it is. And, and in some ways, he has a, a playwright's sense of timing for comic relief. <laughs> because the stories, if you didn't have humour in those stories, they would run the risk of becoming oppressive and too tonally flat and, and almost to the point where it would be off-putting. But it's the ability in the moments of, of great strain and great stress and duress that, that there's little pockets of humour, short little jabs, little little moments that are, are sometimes almost even linguistic play. It, it keeps the tone bouncing a little bit so that um, there's always that counterbalance. You know, Ray always talked about how he thought a good story should have below the surface there should be some menace down there. And we feel that. And what he never really did talk about much was the fact that 
part of what makes that work, that menace below the surface, is that on the surface, there are these sparkling moments of humor that balances that. And that's craft. That's pure craft. And probably uh, with, a, with a good dose of just good instinct in terms of how to tell a good story. And he was notorious for being a good storyteller among his friends. Uh, I've, I've read some of the um, interviews with other friends, and when they would get together and drink, Ray was a great storyteller and, and could get people laughing, and he managed to bring that into his fiction. Tim, do you think you need a lot of courage to read Raymond Carver? Because he forces you to be honest with yourself. He brings you into a very unusual space within yourself as a reader, and he demands a lot of the reader. Yeah, it is quite relentless and a little bit uncompromising. I remember the first time I read Carver was picking up his collected stories and about halfway through I just had to put the book down for a while. It was so it was so relentlessly bleak and and punishing and you know hilarious at the same time but often very dark humor. The humor is often about our self-deceptions, our the moments when we have to confront the mistakes we've made, the moments when we just fail to communicate with each other. And uh, yeah, he he's not afraid to go into dark territory. He's not afraid to go into to marital problems you know he sometimes writes very unsentimentally about his kids it's really it, it's very brave and uh, and uncompromising territory I think for a writer to go into and if you were to pick out maybe one or two of his best short stories what would they be for you well, Cathedral is a wonderful one, uh, one of his most famous, uh, and um, you find it a lot in anthologies. Another one is A Small Good Thing, which is one of the ones that Lish edited. You know, people have different opinions about the, the stories that Lish edited, but that's certainly one where I think the original has a lot more sort of humanity and uh, and really goes somewhere that, that you don't get in, in the shorter version. It really goes to a... a a wonderful sort of moment of, of release and, and redemption for the characters. And Robert, if I was to put you on the spot and ask you what short stories would stick out for you if you were encouraging listeners to pick up some Raymond Carver, what would jump out for you? I would say from the early period, my favourite of the early stories is uh, Put Yourself in My Shoes, which is a story about a writer. Uh, it was the first individual book he had. It was published as a small chapbook by Capra Press. So it's technically Ray's absolute first book. It's so full of, of humor and the idea of the writer looking for the material and discovering it. From the middle period, I think so much water so close to home is, I think, the story that probably stays with me the strongest. And, and it's one of those situations with a very, very troubled marriage, too, of, of a, a woman feeling trapped in a relationship, and her husband finds the body of a drowned woman, and she realizes that his reaction to that is emblematic for their entire relationship and how she deals with that. It's, I, I think, one of the most powerful and resonant stories he's ever written. From the late period, the last story that he writes, I think Elephant is my favorite of, of the late stories. The, the humor in it uh, of a man who, who reaches rock bottom, and the farther down he goes, the more he's able to laugh about it. He's able to finally laugh at himself and move on. So those are those are my three favorite stories. I mean, I, I think uh, they're the ones that, for me, are the ones that always stay with me the longest. And do you think he deserves his reputation as the greatest short story writer from America from the 20th century? Or do you think that's pushing it a bit? Do you think I'm being a bit dramatic there? I'd say the second half of the 20th century in terms of his impact on, on, on the American short story, absolutely. And yourself, Tim? I, I think so. I mean, there's there's a lot of great American short story writers and, you know, people would make a case for Hemingway and others. So it's, I mean, it's it's difficult to, when it comes to ranking writers, I don't know, but he's certainly, he's certainly up there. He deserves to uh, he deserves to be read and, and, and to keep being read. Thank you.
and that was Tim Grunland from the School of English at Trinity College Dublin and American poet and writer Professor Robert Miltner from Kent State University. Now Robert has produced some lovely works of fiction, literary criticism and poetry. So if you're interested, I recommend his short story collection and your bird can sing and his book of poems. Hotel Utopia. Okay, coming up next, we're going to meet with biographer and novelist Carol Skelenica, the author of Raymond Carver, A Writer's Life. But first, let's take a bit of a break. Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. I'm Susan Cahill. Now, if you've missed any of our shows to date, don't worry. The good news is they're all up as podcasts on www.newstalk.com forward slash talking books. And News Talk has some very handy apps that make podcasting all very straightforward. OK, let's now move into a very intimate and rewarding space. The world of biography. Carol Selenica is an American biographer and essayist. She's a member of the Biographers International Association and has contributed to a range of high-profile publications, including Confrontation, South Atlantic Quarterly and The Iona Woman. She has also written 11 novels and four short story collections and is currently in the process of writing a biography of American short story writer and novelist Alice Adams. Now, Carol is possibly best known as the author of Raymond Carver, A Writer's Life, the first comprehensive biography of Carver, which incidentally was named one of the 10 best books of 2009 by the New York Times magazine. To research the life of Raymond Carver, Carol studied archives and visited towns all over the United States and conducted hundreds of interviews with Carver's relatives, his friends and colleagues. Interestingly, Raymond Carver's second wife, poet and literary critic Tess Gallagher, refused to be interviewed by Skelenica. Well, over the weekend, Carol took a call from her home in San Francisco. I put it to her. Is it fair to describe Raymond Carver as a man of tremendous contradictions? A man both warm and angry. That's very true, yes. I think it had to do in part with where he grew up, the working class uh, situation his family had. It was a very beautiful place. I think the nature there influenced his gentleness, but also his violence because he was a hunter. But yeah, I think he had a lot of kind of uh, buried violence that would come out sometimes in his work and later came out in his life. And Carol, when you were researching a writer's life, what was that like to come up close to that temperament, which was a man full of contradictions and a man with a very violent energy, but also with a very beautiful poetic vision for life? 
I guess it's like getting to know any person. It's It can be confusing. And it's funny, a friend just emailed me an essay I had written about the research for the book. But what I talked about there was going to the place where he grew up and trying to meet all the people that he'd known as a child and that his parents had known. So, I mean, I really tried to research the book almost chronologically because I first met some of the older people who'd known his parents. So, I mean, it was kind of a process of accreting all this information and coming up against these contradictions as he became a teenager and then as he became a full-blown alcoholic in his 20s and 30s. And his relationship with his father, I know his father worked in a sawmill and was a heavy drinker and was a very silent man. How did that influence his life and how similar was he to his father? His father was supposedly a very thoughtful man. Being a saw filer is one of the very skilled jobs in a sawmill. It requires a lot of precision, and he was apparently very good at that. Uh, he was what they call a binge drinker, so he you know, would go off every other weekend or something and get very drunk and then not drink in between. So he was quite different from his son in that way, who was a constant drinker later on. To answer your question, he admired his father a great deal. I think his father had um, qualities that were quiet and undeveloped, and I think Carver saw himself as kind of fulfilling some of his father's hopes. And he had a very unusual relationship with his first wife, Marianne. They were married for nearly 25 years or so, and he also seemed to have been quite a conflicted father. Well, he became a father at a very early age. Uh, he married his teenage bride. She was, I think, 16 when they got married, and he was 18. And they were both quite ambitious, which was a lucky thing for them because they were both determined that Raymond Carver should be a writer. I completely believe her that she always felt that and that she wanted that almost as much as he did. But, of course, she was also pregnant and had children to think about and he was sentimental toward his children when they were little, but they really seemed to be something he didn't have much time for. As, again, as his alcoholism developed and his, his understanding of how difficult it was to be a writer developed. And the children, you know, were a financial burden to him. And he usually had to do a lot of childcare because his wife was always working at jobs. The one thing I've never understood is why he wrote such mean things about his children. I can't imagine someone doing that. I guess he just thought he needed to be honest about how he felt about it. Maybe he thought he was warning people. But it was very hard on his children to read these things later on when they grew up and were reading. I mean, how could you understand your father saying that you'd been a burden to him? And Carol, do you think that in some way the conflict that he had in his marital relations and the very difficult relationship he had with his children and how he seemed very restricted and very contained in the domestic side of his life, do you think that gave him an inside track into the dark places where marriage can go and the demands that marriage brings and how he was able to write about that. Because his short stories, if they do anything, they really show the conflict that happens in marriages and the separation and the punishments that happen in relationships that are falling apart and the bitterness. He communicates it so brilliantly in his writing. So do you think he was very much writing from what he was experiencing himself in his own marriage, in his own life? Absolutely. I mean, you could almost look at his first marriage as a laboratory for those stories. 
Marianne was well aware that this was happening. And again, because she had this very romantic idea of helping him be a writer and a very romantic idea of their relationship, she 